Good morning. So we begin a five-week preaching series this week. We don't often do topical preaching at our church. We're often working through a book of the Bible, but we thought it was fitting at this time um, in accordance with the things we've been walking through even at our meeting last week and leading into that, uh, that the elders and your pastors have settled on five commitments that we want to be lasting commitments of our church, which explain to ourselves and remind ourselves how specifically we fulfill what we've said our mission is, which is proclaiming Christ, advancing his kingdom. So I have the privilege of preaching to you on the first one of these commitments, which number one is a commitment to worshiping Christ. Um, I'm going to try to use this clicker, but I've got my trusty hue back there. Okay, so I don't actually have the whole statement up there. I'm going to read it to you, but I'm not actually going to go through the whole statement and break it down uh, phrase by phrase. I'm going to read it to you first, and then we'll focus on a particular part of it. Uh, What we say is Christ's kingdom is advanced where he is worshipped as the only true God. At Christ's church, our worship is characterized by both fear of God and love for him. Our worship services are sober and joyful as we fervently pray, enthusiastically sing, and unapologetically preach God's law and his gospel. We strive to preach so that all those who hear might repent of their specific sins and live their whole lives serving and glorifying Christ rather than themselves, the world, or the devil. We obey our Lord's command to baptize new disciples, like next week, and we regularly proclaim his death in the fellowship we have with him and with one another through him in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, when I was preparing my what I hoped would be very brief spiel last week on this commitment. I jokingly said to Joseph afterwards, I said, I think we need a five-week preaching series at least on each one of these. (laughs) He helpfully pointed out that that would mean committing to 25 weeks of a topical sermon series, which he wasn't willing to do. So Uh, I'm not going to break down this entire statement. Uh, For one, I hope the statement is clear and simple enough Uh, as it is, that by itself it's an encouraging reminder to you of what it means to be a Christian, and I hope it brings into focus what we as a church exist to do in worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. What I do want to do this morning, uh, first of all, before we get to a particular part of this statement, is remind us of one big truth which is contained in the commitment itself, worshiping Christ. This is a very simple reminder, but it's the simple fact that Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. I need this reminder. Satan's deceptions are very strong, and in my own thoughts, it is easy to forget that Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. I confess that I even find myself forgetting how clearly Scripture teaches that Christ is to be worshipped. This has to be re- happened to me recently. Satan will get into our minds and make us doubt even simple truths about our faith, like the fact that Jesus Christ is, wor- is worshipped, is to be worshipped. And assuming that I'm not the only one who has these strange doubts pop into your mind, even when you've been a Christian for 20 years, I think here we need a shot in the arm this morning of Christ's worthiness. So here is... Our first shot from Revelation chapter 5. We get a glimpse into the worship of heaven in the book of Revelation. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, this is the Apostle John speaking, and the, and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, sorry about that. Oh, he was helping me out. I should just let you help you. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ. If God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is worthy of worship, then Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, is worthy of that same worship. For God the Father has given all things into the hand of His Son, Jesus. Jesus Himself was not shy about proclaiming this while He was on this earth. In Matthew, He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. When I read this in preparation yesterday, I just thought, oh my God, how worthy is Jesus Christ of our absolute devotion. The only way to know God, the maker of all things, is to know Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he, Christ Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, will worship him, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. In fact, He is so worthy that those who do not worship Him will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He is so worthy of worship that to not worship Him is condemnable. It is a great sin not to give Christ the glory He deserves. And as from the passages we just read, He deserves how much of it? All of it. We need this reminder. We need it because there are so many things in this world competing for our attention. And not just for our attention, but for our adoration and our praise. What do we praise? What do we give the glory of our words to? Well, we praise movies and actors. We praise music and musicians. We praise athletes in our favorite sports teams. We praise philosophers and teachers. We praise sports cars. We praise guns. We praise our founding fathers and other political heroes. We praise our children. We praise our pastors and the writers of our favorite books. We praise our favorite apps on our phone, our favorite video games, our favorite artists and the art they make. We praise our favorite social media influencers. We praise the qualities of cage-free organic eggs. Our lips are constantly praising someone or something. There is no denying that we, as human beings, are full of praise for something. The shameful truth is many of us seldom remember the Lord Jesus Christ in our day-to-day lives. We have so many earthly concerns and distractions that we forget that all things are from Him and to Him and through Him. To Him be glory forever. Are our mouths filled with the praises of Jesus Christ? Is there anything else under the sun worth the praise and attention that can be offered to Him by the praises of our lips? I love this verse from John 21 at the very end of the Gospel of John. The Apostle John writes, after he's recorded 
some of the most important things from Jesus' life and ministry. He says, and there also are many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. It's impossible to say too much about the glorious work of Jesus Christ and of who he is. At Christ's church, Jesus Christ means everything to us. We bear his name in the name of our church and also in the fact that we are called Christians. And we have come to know that it is a glorious thing to bear the name of the Lord of all things. It's a glorious thing to get to be called his chosen ones. So let us not be ashamed to name the name of Christ. Let's not be ashamed to be ambassadors for our Lord and Savior, even through simple proclamations of praise to everyone around us, both of those here and those outside of here, including unbelievers. We should not be ashamed to praise the name of Jesus Christ. We should constantly be telling anyone who will listen to us, the Lord Jesus has dealt bountifully with me. Now, I do want to zoom in on just a small section of this commitment. So that's the big picture and reminder that Christ is worthy of worship. And that needs to be so central to our understanding of what it means to be the church is that we are worshipers of the Lord. That's what the Father is seeking you, seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Now, I want to zoom in on just a small section um, that in talking, I specifically talked to Danny and Joseph and Paul, and the Lord led because I asked Danny, I said, which, you know, I laid out the whole thing, said, which part of this do you think we should talk about, or should I preach on on Sunday? And then I went to Joseph and Paul, and I said, what part do you think that I should preach on on Sunday? And they picked the same part. I didn't give any hints or anything. Uh, so our worship services, this is the part I want to look at. So our worship services are sober and joyful as we fervently pray, enthusiastically sing, and unapologetically preach. First of all, we focused on worship services and explaining this commitment, not because that's the only place that worship happens, but because Sunday worship with the gathered saints is at the very heart of true Christian worship. And it's during the public gathering of the church that our commitments will become most visible and most evident. We are committed to our worship services being a particular way, and we've done our best to describe the characteristics in this short explanation of what true Christian worship is. Now, one aspect of this that might surprise some people is the fact that our worship services are sober. Our worship is that way because our God is holy. He is a righteous judge, and he is to be approached with fear and trembling, even by holy angels. Okay, That's how holy angels who have no sin and no unrighteousness in them, that's how they are to approach God their maker, is with fear and trembling. They fall on their faces before God. How much more us who are full of sin and corruption should we approach God with fear and trembling? Now, I'm not going to spend very much time on the sobriety of our worship today, but that reality remains even as we address what comes next in the explanation of our commitment. We're going to spend more time on the fact that we are committed to our worship services being joyful. First of all, let's see if I have this. Oh yeah, look there. Yeah, and joyful as we ferment. So this is actually what we're zooming in on, okay? Just a few words, part of a part of a sentence here. Uh, but this is what everyone independently agreed would be worth Christchurch hearing this morning. Um, first of all, joyful worship is not at odds with sober-minded worship. God is both our judge and our Savior. Those who rejoice in God's salvation approach him with holy reverence. Our fear of God is heightened as we grow in our understanding of his redemption of us through the cross of Christ. That doesn't remove our fear of God or our reverence for the Lord, but it heightens our understanding as we see what, what price the Lord paid for our sins. Now, first of all, there is joy in our worship services for the simple fact that the corporate worship of the church is the joy of of a true Christian. Let me say that again. The corporate worship, the gathered worship of Christ's body of the church is the joy of a true Christian. Let me read a couple of passages. Psalm 16, this is from 
The sweet psalmist of Israel, David, says in Psalm 16, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. That's what David says about God's people. In Psalm 122, he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That made David glad when he said, when people said, it's time to go to church. We should cultivate that joy in ourselves and in our children. The worship service of the church of Jesus Christ should be the highlight of our week. It should be more delightful than watching another episode of your favorite show. It should be more delightful than your soccer game last week or the one you're looking forward to this week. It should even be more of a delight than art class. I say that for one of my own children. And it's joyful for not any superficial earthly reason. Coming to church is not a joy because you get to talk about guns with your buddy. It's not a joy because there are bigger explosions than the action movie you watched last night. It's not a joy because the music is more excellent than the concert you went to last week. It's not a joy because the architecture of the sanctuary transports you to higher heights of spiritual experience. Right? I'll say more about that later. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was at a Gothic cathedral down in Covington, Kentucky, on a field trip with Witt's class. Now, the place was breathtaking. Filled with stained glass from floor to ceiling. 80-foot ceilings filled with stone sculptures and gorgeous wood carvings that overshadow you, and marble and brass inlaid in the marble, and soaring vaulted ceilings, and glory as you look around, right? And as we were about to leave, a professional organist came to practice for a wedding that weekend, and he played beautifully Johann Sebastian Bach's Yesu Joy of Man's Desiring on the organ with its 3,000 pipes resounding. You know, the wedding song. Ah, what glory. But do you know what the sad thing is? That cathedral is a place of spiritual death. The whole sanctuary is filled from corner to corner with idols. And do you know the main reason that people go to that sanctuary It's to see and admire the works of man's hands. Not God's work. And sadly, they go to literally bow down to idols. There's the statue. Here's the kneeling bench. (laughs) That you get to bow down to the idol. Now, Mars Hill's gym is not the most aesthetically pleasing place to worship, is it? But guess what? This gym is infinitely more beautiful on Sunday morning than any Roman Catholic cathedral. Because the gathering of saints, wherever it takes place, when gathered to offer fervent prayers to God and enthusiastically sing praises to the name of Christ Jesus and to hear His Word preached, that is what God loves and finds beautiful. In fact, God is never impressed with the works of man's hands. King Solomon constructed a glorious temple filled with gold and craftsmanship for the ages. And God graciously lowered himself by calling that temple his dwelling place, because that's what Solomon asked. Solomon asked God, would you make this your dwelling place? And God condescended and said, yes, I'll, I'll call this my house, my dwelling place. But listen to what God said to Solomon after that, he said, the Lord, the Lord said to him, to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship then, Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. In the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? 
And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God and brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt. Who brought their fathers out? And adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. Now, after the field trip to the Cathedral Basilica, I was talking with another parent, and I mentioned the spiritual death of that gorgeous cathedral. She expressed a longing to be able to have that kind of aesthetic beauty in our worship, even though we're not Roman Catholics. She pointed out how distracting it is to worship in the gym at Mars Hill with the basketball goals and the trash cans and the, uh, <laughs> the clan flags presiding over our worship, right? And I agree. It's distracting, right? She acknowledged the truth, of, but she also acknowledged the truth of what I said about spiritual death, but at the same time said, can't we have both? Okay, now my question to you is, what do you think? Can you have both beautiful aesthetics and God's presence? See, I see some eager, some people wanting the answer to be yes, at least. I thought about it for a while after we had that conversation. And here's my answer to that question is, sometimes God graciously grants both. God may grant an impressive building to a faithful church. He may grant beautiful music. But I also know you can't set your heart on both. And many Christians fall into the trap of thinking they can safely devote themselves to the pursuit of earthly fading glory and to the kingdom of Christ. But we cannot serve two masters because we will hate the one and love the other. Or we will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and aesthetics. Now, of course, what does Jesus actually say? You cannot serve God and money. But there's not a large disparity between money and aesthetics. And you see this in your tours of the cathedrals because you know what you get when you take a tour? You get an in-depth description of how many millions of dollars it took to replace this little section of white marble from this special quarry that could only produce that marble. What makes the church beautiful in God's sight is not her buildings. What makes the church beautiful first and foremost is her prayers. Now where did I get that? Let me jump back to Revelation 5 here. In verse 7 it says, When he had taken, this is the Lamb, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The point here is not that golden bowls are essential to true worship. The point is that what is precious in God's sight is the prayers of his saints. And this is why we at Christchurch saturate our services with prayer and not with rote superstitious prayers to Mary and other dead saints. We offer up prayers to God in the name of Jesus Christ, our only mediator. We pray for God's blessing when we begin our service. We pray by confessing our sins, both corporately and privately. We pray for many everyday needs in our pastoral prayer. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit as we hear the word preached. We pray for God's work in our lives as a result of the sermon we just heard. We pray God's promise of blessing on his people as we close the service and go out from here. This is intentional. As a church, we are committed to being dependent on prayer. Now understand these commitments that we've written are not proclamations of everything we're doing really well. They largely serve as aspirational commitments to what we know is right. And we know it's impossible to pray too much in that God's people are marked by their devoted and fervent prayers. And we hope the fervent prayers of our worship services then instruct us how to live our daily lives. We want the homes of Christ's church to be households which are marked by fervent devotion to prayer at all times of day for all the things that we need. God's people pray. And we will seek to continue growing in our devotion to prayer as long as God allows this church to continue. Now, in addition to fervent prayer, we are committed to enthusiastic singing. I was talking to someone from another church the other day, and they asked about our congregational participation in our worship. And I had the joy of saying, 
I think our congregational participation is unusually high. Sometimes people remark that when they come and visit church here. And I said especially that's the case in the singing of the men and of the children. And in regards to singing, I would say the same kinds of things I said about Gothic cathedrals. Yeah, there are singers who get paid to beautifully sing songs which were written to the one true God. But I would say the unrefined voices of faithful men and women and children, including the tone deaf, are far more beautiful to God. And it should be to us. This may mean our minds and our hearts have to be reoriented to what God considers beautiful. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking, okay, what, when you see worship in Scripture, what, is, what does it look like? How is it described? I thought of the book of Revelation. And when we read of the worship in heaven around God's throne, what is emphasized or focused on? How is it described? Well, I want you to actually think. When John sees worship and what it looks like in heaven, what are the things, the words that are used to describe what that worship looks like, sounds like? What's it marked by? Any answers? I, my, all my children are raising their hands because I asked them this last night at dinner. <laughs> yes. It's loud. It's loud. This is like point number one. Um, actually, point number one, is, and it's directly connected to loudness, is it's many it's multitudes upon multitudes. It's myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. And you know what the result of that is? It's loud. People from every tribe and nation and tongue. Revelation 19. Yeah, I have this one. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. It's huge. It's loud, right? Even when the Apostle John describes angels' voices, which usually when we think angels' voices, we think, oh, you know? But even when the Apostle John describes angels' voices, do you know what he emphasizes? Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, I was surprised to find that this was like the main thing. And I actually looked in vain for anything describing the worship as beautiful. I looked through the Psalms as well. I found one reference to worship being lovely in the Psalms. But I don't have it up there. Psalm 135 says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. What is lovely? Well, first and foremost, it's the name of the Lord. God bears the loveliness, and because of his beauty and his glory, we give ourselves to worshiping him. Now, this got me interested in looking at the Psalms to see how the praise of God's people is described. Now, this loudness theme shows up in the Psalms too, but apart from loudness, do you know what absolutely marks and describes the singing of the people of God in the Psalms? What kind of words? What? Joyful. I'm going to give you a, I don't know, Stephen Baker was one of the men who discipled me in the faith and in the pastorate, and he's, he's the king of Here's a hundred scripture passages that prove my point. So I'm going to read to you a bunch of short little verses from the Psalms to show you this. I don't have them all up there. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 5. Psalm 20 says, We will sing for joy over your victory, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. Psalm 27 says, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent Sacrifices with shouts of joy. Psalm 30 says, His anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. 
Psalm 32 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 33 says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you his righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. There's a little, it's secondary though, skillful. It is important to be skillful as we can, but joy is. Is the main thing. Psalm 47, O clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, then my tongue will joyfully sing. That's Psalm 51. Psalm 59 says, But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. Psalm 63 says, My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Psalm 66, shout joyfully to God all the earth. Psalm 65, you make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. It's not just us, it's all of creation shouts for joy. This is one of my favorite Oh, I don't think I did it in here. Let the trees, let the rivers clap their hands for the Lord and the trees shout for joy. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. My lips will shout for, I want you to say it, for joy when I sing praises to you in my soul which you have redeemed. Now that's halfway through the book of Psalms. And I skipped a bunch. And that's just the word joy not even words like rejoice, be glad. I think it's significant that Scripture's emphasis is on the joy of our worship, rather than, say, on aesthetic beauty. One reason is because outward earthly beauty comes and goes. The most beautiful cathedrals burn to the ground. They might be able to rebuild the spire on top of Notre Dame, but one day... Notre Dame, Notre Dame, will be a heap of rubble. It may be a thousand, two thousand years from now. But you look at cathedrals, strongly built cathedrals of stone from before Notre Dame, and most of them are piles of rubble, and they're just an outline of where the cathedral used to be. And someday that will be Notre Dame too. So outward earthly beauty comes and goes in that sense, that it literally dies, gets crushed, crumbles. But more, also, in addition to that, aesthetic preferences, what we like, come and go over time. Most of us wouldn't want the most popular singers from 100 years ago uh, up front helping us lead in worship, singing background vocals. Now, you might think of exceptions. I thought, you, none of us wants Snow White here singing background vocals, right? I don't. I want Abby singing background vocals, right? When it comes to our worship, joy is absolutely essential. Aesthetics are secondary at best. Now, why would we be joyful? Let's come back to Jesus Christ. His great kindness to us is woven throughout all the scriptures I've read to you this morning, even in the Psalms. I'm going to pick up in the second half of the book of Psalms, okay? So Psalm 89 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O oh Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. We're lifted up because of God's loving kindness. Psalm 95 says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 100 is entirely about joyfully singing to the Lord. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting in his faithfulness to all generations. This is from Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. 
Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And then this is what the psalm says. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The last few psalms at the end of the psalms, kind of the late 140s up through 150, are psalms of praise. This is Psalm 145. I'm going to read all of Psalm 145. It says, oh, I think I have this. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Hugh. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. Now pay attention to the word all here. The Lord is good to all. And His mercies are over all His works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praises of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Who wrote that? Anybody know? Yeah, Liam. No? You, picked, you, you should have picked the, the easy one. <laughs> I ask easy questions in my sermons. Yes, Wit. Yes, King David. That's right. If anybody asks, if I ask you who wrote this in the Psalms, I'm probably trying to throw you a softball. King David. King David wrote that about the goodness and the kindness of the Lord. King David didn't even know Jesus. All he knew was that God had told him one of his descendants would have an eternal kingdom. But he didn't know when that would be. He didn't know what Jesus would look like, nor what all Jesus would do when he did come. But we, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So 2 Corinthians 4 says, Christ is our joy because of who He is and what He has done. What King David knew from a distance through God's promises, we know intimately. When Jesus talks to His disciples about their joy, He refers to Himself as the source of their joy. John 16 says, you have grief now. This is when he's with his disciples before his death. You have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Colossians 3 says, Set your mind, this is a command to us, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus keeps your life completely safe in God, regardless of anything that can happen to you on this earth. Then when Christ, who is our life, is, a, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Listen to this from Romans 8 with this context. 
think of Psalm 145 and God's great goodness to us. I might have left it out. Here it is. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? I think this is a psalm of the New Testament. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or cancer or the death of a child or your own death? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This always feels like kind of a strange insertion in this part, but what it's saying, this is a prophecy about God's people and what they will suffer. They will be slaughtered and put to death. For the name of God. And yet, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus Christ has made a way for us, for you, for me to stand blameless in the presence of the God of the universe. And when this earth has completely passed away, you get to dwell with God and with all the saints in glory because of Christ Jesus. We have every reason to be joyful. And one of the main things joyful people do is sing. Singing is the irrepressible fruit of joy. But singing is not just the product of joy, it's also the kindler of our joy. We cultivate our, Lord, our joy in the Lord by singing. Even when our hearts are not feeling the joy we know we're supposed to feel, we know objectively in our minds that it is right and good to sing songs of praise to the name of Christ. And so we do, and our singing helps fan into flame the work of the Spirit of Christ inside of us. Paul and Silas were singing hymns of praise to God when? when they were in prison, in chains. Not because their earthly circumstances were pleasant. They sang in the midst of their affliction because it's then when God is most near to us. They sang because by faith they knew even in imprisonment that there was no, it was not compared, sorry, that even imprisonment was nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Mr. Patrick has told me that he's made a habit of singing the doxology to himself in his everyday life. When is it that you do that? Oh, often. No, but like, is it under particular circumstances? Yeah, so you might think, oh yeah, he probably sings the doxology whenever he's just feeling awesome. You know, and something went really well. You know, signed a big contract or, you know, something like that. But he said, maybe didn't hear what he said, he said he sings it when things are not going how he wants them. And he's tempted to feel sorry for himself. That's when he sings the doxology, often out loud, to yourself. That's when we should sing the doxology, right? We should sing it when things go well and we're giving thanks and praise to God, but we also need to sing it when we're not feeling that way. Now, generally, do you know why soldiers sing as they're going into battle? Is it because they're really jazzed about the opportunity to die? Now, if you read books about war or talk to anyone who has been in war, it's generally because they're very afraid is why they sing. And it's good to think about soldiers because soldiers generally aren't overly concerned with how beautiful their voices sound as they're marching to their death. The goal is not to look good. It's to muster up your courage for the mission that's in front of you. And that's probably the best analogy for what our singing at church is supposed to be. It's not putting on a show. It's calling ourselves and one another to the faith and joy and courage that are necessary for the Christian life. This is why the Psalms so often command us to lift a joyful shout to the Lord. King David was a warrior. And there was no great disparity in his mind between the shout of battle 
in the shout of worship. Christ Jesus is a warrior. And there will be shouting when he returns. One last word about singing. Mr. Thistleton last week said that hospitality, as we think about that, is not primarily a gift that some Christians have and others don't. Right? You remember him saying that? It's just an essential part of being a Christian, and it's commanded of us all. I would say singing is in the exact same category, if not even more so. Singing is not an optional part of the Christian life, and that's for two reasons. One, we must sing to God. It's commanded of us. But number two, as we don't think about as often, but we must sing to one another. I may have to go backwards for this one. I think I put this in the wrong order. There we go. Colossians 3 describes the love of the people of God, what it should look like for one another. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So this is what the people of God, how they should love each other. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called I get that right. in one body and be thankful. Thankfulness also marks, this isn't a sermon on thankfulness though, but thankfulness is one of those central things even in the Psalms. And then listen to this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is a Christian duty, is we gather together to sing praises to God. But many of our songs, if you pay attention to them, are directed to one another. How deep the Father's love for us, right? We're about to sing, we're going to close with, when Christ our life appears. This is a reminder to ourselves and to each other as the people of God of where we need to fix our eyes and our hearts. I want to end with some very practical direction when it comes to joy in our worship. So kids, how do you know when someone is joyful? Yes, Owen. When they have, it's my party and I cry. You can cry at your birthday party, right? That might be an occasion when someone is joyful. You're right, but how would you know if that person who's having the party is actually joyful if they're happy. Because they have a smile on their face. Yep, absolutely. How else do you know when someone is joyful? Yeah, Zeal. By what they're doing, like what kinds of things might they be doing? Okay, yeah, Liam. Singing, yes. Joyful people tend to sing. What else? What are things that mark, let you know when someone is joyful or happy? Yes? Oh, they give to other people? Yeah. So they're not just concerned about themselves, right? You share joy, right? Often joy is a, a contagious thing. That you don't, you don't just keep your joy to yourself, but you want it to affect the people around you. I want us just to think very briefly, how does joy in our worship actually manifest itself? Now, we've said that it's through fervent prayer, it's through enthusiastic singing, which the primary thing about enthusiastic singing, I think, is joyful and loud. Uh, it is smiling faces, bright faces, uplifted heads. It's laughter. It's an eagerness to be present, which might mean arriving on time. It's hugs, it's kisses, it's other physical affection for one another. It's raising of hands. And the point is, as I just think about these things in our worship, is the point is joy expresses itself. Fire isn't really fire unless it produces light and heat that you see and you feel and you hear the crackle of the heat. And all these outward expressions of joy, smiling, laughing, singing, are in a similar category with singing in that they sometimes are the natural result of the joy we have, 
but they also serve as ways to rekindle the joy we know we should have in Christ and in the fellowship of his chosen people. So we come together and we discipline ourselves to give ourselves to the singing and to hugging your brother or your sister and to smiling and being present and being happy to be here. We have joy in Christ and it's a, we need to rekindle that joy as we gather together and through prayer and through our singing. I'll close with Psalm 84.2. King David says, My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. He's saying, the joy is on the inside and it's on the outside. It works its way out with my heart and with my body, with my lips, with my voice. We sing for joy to the living God. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray you, praise you joyfully with shouts in the morning and the evening throughout the day because of your great goodness to us. We recognize you as the giver of all things, that all things are through you and to you and for you, and that your Father has handed all things over to you. None of us can know you except through him, because he is the one who reveals you to us. He is the perfect image of you, Lord. We pray that you would rekindle joy in our hearts as we sing even now. Would you grant us joy in gathering with your people? Because the sincere praises of your people who come to worship you, that is what is beautiful in your sight. We pray that you would help us to fix in our minds what is good and right, which is joy in the Lord above all other things, especially over fading earthly glory. Empower us by your Spirit to carry this joy into our homes. Let us as fathers lead our families in joyful singing. Let us listen to the praises of our children's voices and follow them into unashamed worship of you. We pray that our church would be characterized by joyful singing to your name and by fervent prayer. Would you hear our prayers? Would you encourage us in the work of prayer? Answer our prayers so that we might continue to give ourselves to it with joy and with expectation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.